Welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. Today's episode is with Mike Schwartz while I was on the road in Denver. Got a chance to sit down with him at CalLab Solutions and chat about all things metrology. Uh, I'm going to have Mike on the show every once in a while because he runs CalLab magazine and has a, a keen eye for what's going on in the industry. So it's good to have him on every once in a while. I did have a quick announcement for you. Uh, we do have in-person training happening a lot everywhere now. If you have training needs, if you need someone to come out and train your technicians, if you need um, someone to, keep, you have a new hire that you need to get up to speed, reach out to us. We were able to help a lot of different labs and their situations with training needs. So make sure to reach out to us for that. And of course, with talking with Mike, we're going to also promote metrology.net. Better, cheaper, faster. They say pick any two. You can't have all three. But when it comes to automation with metrology.net, you get all three. Better, cheaper, faster automation with ISO slash IEC 17025 measurement uncertainties. To find out more, go to www.metrology.net. And you should be seeing more of these popping up. Uh, enjoy the show. And it was great to talk to Mike while traveling on the road to Denver. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, hello, everybody. This is Ryan on the road again. And today I'm actually in Denver, Colorado. And we do have a, a video version of this as well that we'll see how that works out. Sometimes best laid plans, right? But uh, in Colorado, while I'm here, I am at CalLab Solutions with Mike Schwartz. How's it going, Mike? Hey, thanks for having me on. So, and hello, everybody out there. You, you have to get like, you might want to just hold it because then we can, it, it will be a little bit touchy if we're, if we're holding it the whole time, but. So, all right. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on and hello to everybody out there in, uh, in metrology land. So. We were just talking about, hey, what should we discuss? And, you know, it's very easy whenever I'm traveling to talk about training. And when was the last time you were on? Like 2020? Well, I was on the the last podcast. I called in uh, very late oh, on yeah. that. But, yeah, it was uh, it was well. 2020 uh, was the last time I was on as a guest. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, when? I think it was 2020. Yeah, 2020 during yeah. the pandemic, like season one type stuff, which is cool. So what's new with CalLab Magazine and CalLab Solutions? So well, one of the things that I, I love doing is, you know, being at that. When I first acquired CalLab Magazine, what I wanted to do was be more at the center of this, you know, the hub mm -hmm. with all the spokes that happen in metrology. And it's been very, very successful with that. Oh, yeah. So uh, Fluke recently introduced their 5560s. You know, we've been hearing about that for a while because of the people in the network. Mia test has a new, uh, new, uh, 9010 plus out. Oh, so Transmill has a 4010 out. So there's a lot of new calibrators that are, that are on the market. Um, another one that I really like is, uh, measurements international has a new, uh, current shunt out. Oh, so it's, it looks like it's an inductive current shunt, but it's like 20 times more accurate or 200 times more accurate than the typical current shunt that's out there. So for those of you guys who get out to the shows, you know, NCSL, all three of those products were at the show at NCSL. Yeah, I missed so. the announcement for the Fluke one, but people were talking about it. I, I got several texts. Everybody was texting me, you 
you know, talking about, uh, hey, they just announced it. Did it did it look cool? I didn't see it. I didn't get much time to play with it, even though I was right across the booth from them. But they had a lot of foot traffic coming yeah. in, looking at their looking at their new toys, shielded but by bodies. Yep. So, so for you on the the software end, though, when something like that releases, is that like? Oh, good. I got more things to develop, or is it like, oh man, do, do I need to? Is there any language I got to change in programming, or what? What goes through your mind when stuff like that releases? Well, it's actually a, a very interesting uh, setup there because now there's a new calibrator coming out. So it's people that are typically developing something in a scripting language, mm-hmm. they're going to have to go create a whole new script. So take the script, copy it, go through and edit it. But with us in Metrology.net, we're just going to create a driver for it. And whatever functionality that new calibrator has over the old calibrators, it's going to be able to take advantage of it. So an example is it's going to do 30 amps. So any procedure that needs 30 amps, that procedure will be able to do it. Whereas if you're using a 5520, you'd have to go get some kind of boost amplifier to do it. Right. So something that that looks and sees what model it is and whether or not it needs to ping another device, actually. Yes, yes. What what we did is we looked at the old HTML, and I'm I'm very impressed with the with the guys who sat down and wrote the HTML standard. So you could go get your floppy disk if you still have it that has Netscape on it, <laughs> and you could go stick it in a computer if you can find a computer that'll run a floppy disk. Right, that's and, a problem in itself. <laughs> and then you can fire that up, and that will go out to Facebook, and you'll see all the text on Facebook. You won't see any of the fancy HTML five things and whatnot. But the way they wrote that standard is the the browser does what it can understand Mm. and skips anything it can't. So when we developed our software, we started thinking about that. If the standard can do the data point, let the standard do the data point. If it can't do the data point, skip it and let a technician do it manually with a, you know, another set of standards that can do it. Oh, I got you. Okay. So, so I, I looked at that as being a very amazing, you know, thought process that people can have is just, you know, skipping something. Now, for those of us that aren't programmers, you know, we hear drivers all the time. Is that basically just uh, when you have to release new drivers, is that basically in, uh, some sort of software interface between your software and the, the new device or whatever? Yeah, the way the drivers work is they allow you to talk and, you know, we've been throwing around this idea of, of you know, metrology-driven software engineering. They allow you to talk in a metrological uh, setup. So to, to set up for those people who program, uh, you know, a uh, 5520, for example, mm-hmm. to set the output, you're going to do, you know, output and then you're going to do one volt, you know, comma one kHz, and it's going to set the output out up that way. And there's a bunch of commands that you send it across the GPIB bus. This allows us to just basically say, I want one amp at, you know, one kHz. Mm -hmm. And then the driver reads that and says, okay, I know the commands to make this calibrator do that work. And I also know the uncertainty equations to pull that up and give you the type B uncertainties of this calibrator and send that back to you. Wait, so drivers, are those often released by third parties like yourself? Or I guess sometimes uh, a manufacturer will also release drivers? So manufacturers, there's a standard out there called Ivy. So a lot of times manufacturers will release Ivy drivers that'll just, you know, take what you want and convert it into the Ivy Foundation command Mm, set. Um, and the Ivy Foundation is kind of like a Skippy, but it's designed to be cross cross instrument capable. 
And then there's a lot of people out there that are like LabVIEW. So LabVIEW mm, customers I've heard like of some LabVIEW VIs and release those. And they're just a bunch of things that you don't have to get in the weeds, you know, of the calibrators. So you don't have to. So one of the things that will happen with a 5520 is you'll set the output to 26 volts, mm -hmm. right? And you set it to 26 volts, 1K hertz, and then it's going to turn itself off because it's over that 25 volt threshold. Mm. So now you've got to go back and say, okay, clear your error and set it again. So, and you know, those are type things that get handled in the driver. Right. That makes sense. That aren't handled in the, um, you know, that you would have to handle if you wrote the code yourself. Sure. So, and I could be wrong. It might be 40 volts, but it's 25 or 40 volts. One of those voltages is it'll, it'll trip itself off. And then you've got to turn the output on again for safety reasons. So what are, this is totally off the top of my head asking you this, so it's okay if you don't know off the top of yours, but uh, since we're talking about this stuff, so what's NIST on a chip supposed to be? Oh. <laughs> like, what is that? What, like, I keep hearing about this NIST on a chip. What is that supposed to be? So I've sat back and watched some of the, or been at some of the presentations that they've done, so I'm not going to call myself an expert on NIST on a chip. Oh, Okay. But there's a lot of technologies like the Josephine Junction for AC voltage or for mm -hmm. DC voltage. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got a, a Josephine Junction that gets tuned to a particular microwave frequency. And when you hit that micro microwave frequency just right, all the steps come in and oh. they start generating a perfect voltage, a voltage that's better than we can measure it anywhere in the world. Gotcha. So it's considered a, a you know, a, an intrinsic standard because we just can't measure it. You know, the noise becomes a, a bigger problem. So there's a lot of different technologies that they think they can put into, you know, a chip technology and then the chip just does it. Got it. So that, that when you need perfect voltage, you can just reference the chip and it's small, lightweight, you know, easy to manufacture and, you know, your calibrator of the future, call it a... You know, um, I, I don't even know what the model number would be, but the, the <laughs> calibrator of the future would have one of these chips in it, and it would be able to have a reference that you never have to check the reference on. Oh, that's cool. So I don't know. Now, with the NIST on a chip, they say you won't have to calibrate anything, but I think of NIST on a chip and all those other circuits, and I'm thinking we'll still have to calibrate things. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day with, uh, I, you know, at the hotel I'm staying at, there's a, a Starbucks automated coffee machine with an internal grinder. So you get fresh, freshly ground coffee and everything. It was really good. But, uh, I was at, talking to the, the lady at the desk and she was saying, yeah, but a guy has to come and, you know, do adjustments to it every so often because it will overpour, you know, certain things. And, and, uh, I guess they attribute it to the water out here. Do you guys have harder water? Yeah, yeah, we so, get uh, so some it hard does. Water. Yeah, so it does have a like a way to kind of adjust itself. But because of the water, it messes up. You know, adds corrosion and everything to it. But so I think of it more like that. Like there's so many manufacturers and everything that are doing processes that it's it's very hard to make all of that. For one, it would most likely have to be wireless, right? And then also referenced, you know, I don't know. It, it's an interesting time to be around for it. The uh, the Army tried to do this about 10 years ago, I think it was. They said, you know, all of our test equipment has a self-cal feature and we're just going to we're just going to zero out program management's budget. So we're just going to zero it out and everything's going to be self-cal in the future. Mm -hmm. 
And for two years, they had no budget. So there was, you know, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do, what they're going to do, what they're going to do. And finally, the, the saving grace was, the, was avionics. Oh. So you can't fly unless your stuff's calibrated. Right. There's no self-check allowed, especially over in Europe. Europe has gone so far with the calibrations that a lot of countries that uh, that meter that sits in sits on your house. Mm-hmm. So here in the U.S., they build a house, they put a meter on there. Thirty years later, they might do something with it. Right. Yeah. Right. So is that meter reading well? Is it not? You know, are you getting overcharged? Are you getting undercharged? Yeah. You know, over in Europe, they'll pull those meters every two years and do a seventeen oh two five cal on them. So they'll literally come out to your house, pull that meter out, yeah. install a new meter. It's funny you bring this up. Before I started the school, um, I I, I won't even say how far back because that will pinpoint where I was at. But um, there was a couple companies that reached out to a place I was working talking about calibrating like 400 of those meters, you know, starting to look at projects like that because uh, they did it internal. I think I think it was the army that did the research on it that found a ton of them out of like bad or or just not operating properly. Does that sound about right? Yep. Yeah. 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 I can see that. I mean, no, nobody really knows, you know, they'll do a, they'll do a study mm-hmm. and we'll go back to that, uh, Starbucks example. You know, they did a study, they figured out how to engineer a great thing and then they put it in an environment that wasn't the environment that they did the study on. Right. And, you know, we look at the, across the United States, you know, the different humidities, temperatures and, you know, fluctuations that you're going to have, you know, there's a lot of things that's going to, that's going to affect, you know, those power measurements. Well, and personnel, like that's the funny thing is people that think it's easy to automate calibration have not done third party onsite, like manufacturing, because it's so variable where you have places like I would go to these great biomedical companies that are beautiful and their, their lines are gorgeous and everything was well laid out. Yeah, that's fine. But then you go to dirty manufacturing and you're like wiping off a year's worth of you know, diamond dust or something, you know, to do your cow. So it can be so highly variable that, you know, I don't see with our, you know, the estimates, I don't know if I told you the estimates because, um, I I lack put out numbers that I think in the United States there's, or no, there's like 60,000 accredited labs or something like that. Maybe in, in the world, it's something like that. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, um, you know, the general estimate is that almost every lab would have about one or a deficiency of about one or two technicians. So if you look at that worldwide as a, a worldwide problem, because, you know, yes, we, we, we service the United States, but, you know, it's, as you know, we, we, te- we train in Europe, we train uh, the Philippines all over the place. The, the problem is, is that over time, you know, who's getting the, the proper training and is it getting done at the, you know, at the right levels is basically, you know, can, can you really transfer that into an automated thing that when you have a whole bunch of people working around it constantly, they won't mess it up somehow? No, I don't, I don't know how. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things when I'm writing automation that becomes a, that becomes an issue. Cause you know, my biggest issue is going to be not so much the, the equipment, it's going to be the technician. Mm-hmm. You know, and the technician hooking something up wrong. I mean, that's just so common. And even me, I'll do it. I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I look at the instruction and then I'm like two steps ahead or two steps behind and I hook it up incorrectly. 
And one story that I like to tell is, you know, one of my customers had this, uh, had this program that he'd been running for years, right? And just so happened I was there that day and the CEO of the company was there that day and I was over doing something else. And they go, Mike, you need to get over there. You know, he's, there's, he's having a problem. You know, so I go over there and he's like, gosh, damn thing. I put the 50 ohm term in. I take the 50 ohm term out. I can't see it passes and fails. So, so the counters, you know, just not picking up the measurement. You know, it's timing out and all kinds of things. And he's, you know, playing around with his connectors. So, so I reach over to the unit under test and it's a B and C cable, right, on the unit under test. So I take the B and C cable off and I look at it. And the B and C has four pins in there. Well, it had one pin left. Oh, geez. <laughs> Yeah. Right. One pin left. So it wasn't making a good connection. And that's why everything was going haywires. You know, he'd put it on and make a connection. You know, then he'd jiggle the cable and it's not making a connection. And this is one of my pet peeves out there. What had happened with that is somebody using that piece of equipment, the customer, would like to stick N type connectors in it. Oh, yeah. Right. And the N type connector will push in, but it spreads those pins out. And then you spread those pins out and then bend them back and spread them out and bend them back. Pretty soon those pins fall out and you're down to one pin left. Right. So, but yeah, that was one of the things that I told them, you know, software doesn't wear out. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. And you're talking about things like cables and, you know, it's funny that we had that training in NCSLI and no matter how closely in a training environment you keep an eye on people, they find a way to break those ancillary equipment, you know, the, the connectors and the, the cables, just cause they get everything gets moved and turned and you know yep. but it's funny you were mentioning uh yeah they the having to do things correctly and in the right way you know even us at the school when you're trying to teach it you're trying to put it on film you're trying to leave it for you know for long term catching all the little nuances sometimes is really hard and and a good example is that as mari uh, microwave as you know recently let us borrow one of their more expensive gauge kits for their connectors and and uh as i was doing the video portion you know i i made sure to to harp on you know turn the turning component don't turn the entire connect you know the entire connector and all that uh, there was one point in the in in it where i held the gauge by the gauge instead of by its little collar and i didn't even catch it until we go through peer review everything that we do we put it through people that don't eat, don't get paid by us people that are happy to point out any problems we have in there and they they notice they're like hey you said you know not to grab by the top and you did there and it's like you know even the experience that i have and the the amount of connectors i've done sometimes catching every single thing is so hard it, and granted i don't do it every day anymore but still you know it's it's those little things that they add up over time you know yeah, and that's uh, that's actually amazing with the RF and microwave, how those little things make a difference. Yeah. You know, I've been to RF and microwave labs where I made a mistake like that. And they go get a different cow kit and give it to me. And they take their good cow kit away. Oh, <laughs> you are yeah. no longer allowed to use my master cow kit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, a lot of us are familiar. Like the military, we used the ones that weren't um, – like you don't actually torque them on, you you place them on. Hmm. So there's two different versions. There's ones you torque on, you know, they're a screw-on type, which are those, the metrology grade. And then there's the ones that you just place on like we had in the Navy Marine Corps. I'm, I'm sure like the uh, A007 Alpha, do you remember those? Mm -mm. Mm. They're, they're, I'm sure someone listening will be like, oh, yeah, we have those right here, you know, because – 
it's the kit that almost everybody used and it had a male and female in one, you know, so it's just one gauge. Okay. You know, you know, the military, that's good enough for military work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things is uh, I've learned as you're going up, you've got that production lab mm-hmm. and then you've got, you know, the, the reference lab and then you got the primary lab and then you've got NIST and they literally do different metrology at each one of those labs. Oh, yeah. You can't take something you do in production and NIST. And then you get a lot of people that want to take what they're doing at NIST down to the production. Right. You know, counting, uh, including resolution of your Fluke 87 in your uncertainty budget. Why? Yeah. <laughs> my my calibrator is 10 times better than my Fluke 87. Why am I trying to include this resolution? Yeah, so, that's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, it's the way somebody wrote the 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 way somebody wrote the uh, requirements at that top level. And it's just kind of filtered down. And that's one of the things that uh, me and some other people in the industry want. We want to bring some, some logic back to, to measurement uncertainties. Is that's a good transition into training, right? Cause the, I didn't know the problem. Like I'll be, I'll, I always on these podcasts, I'm always the one that's honest about, you know, my own journey and all of this, right. Guide up procedures using the 17, TAC 20 procedures or whatever from the military, you know, I, I always thought, well, hey, yeah, they were good for us in the military. They got to be good for the civilian side. Now I'm understanding a lot more as I, these last three years, as I've been in the school, how problematic that is, because there's a lot of people that are relying on procedures. I didn't, I, you know, because you're, you're talking about, you know, things being passed down and really passing down within a single organization, which has been proven over time to be hard to do, right? people information gets lost over time it just does and so having like something like us and you know i i always say i'm not trying to make this all just a a commercial for us but like the purpose of a third-party school is to keep some of that that those hints and tricks and things over time you know a good way to to present those to everybody so that people have that knowledge there's no forget like hey oh that guy forgot to tell me this stuff now i'm doing everything wrong from here on out you know, that's the the problem, the inherent problem out there. And I didn't realize, because, you know, we, we hold that with a badge of honor in the military. Like, I follow procedure. I st- stick straight to procedure. Well, that doesn't work in the civilian community when you're using procedures that aren't written specifically for what you have, you know. So that kind of goes into what you were saying there. Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed and I was thinking about this before we started this, is it's almost like you can divide the metrology technicians into two categories. There's the guy who's going to follow the procedure exactly mm-hmm. the way the procedure tells him to do something. If there's a problem, somebody's got to come in and write the procedure. And there's a place for that, like, you know, uh, nuclear industry. Right. You know, they're all procedure-based. If, if there's a problem, stop what you're doing, rewrite the procedure. But then you get into that, you know, third-party calibration lab coming in, seeing something new, getting handed a piece of test equipment they've never seen in their life. And they've got yeah. to figure out how to calibrate this thing. Yeah, and anything, literally anything can come through the door in a third-party cal lab. And all you can get is some specifications, and you're trying to interpret what these specifications are and trying to figure out how to do that. And their needs, yep. the customer's needs. Yep. And that's where it comes into that, that type of technician is always going to be your really good repair guy. Mm-hmm. And that's where we lose a lot of those technicians is into the repair because you've got to be able to troubleshoot. So yeah. when you, you know, hook up your voltmeter and you set your calibrator up and your voltmeter doesn't, you know, doesn't read right. Well, if the procedure says adjust the voltmeter, you're going to go adjust the voltmeter. Mm-hmm. But what if it's your cables 
Right. You know, what if it's, you know, the you haven't let something thermally stabilize? You know, there's a lot of things that can happen in there to, to mess up your measurement. Yeah. You know, and that's where that troubleshooting side comes in. So for me writing software, I've got to figure out the problem and I've got to troubleshoot it down into something that's kind of repeatable. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> I can figure out what's going on with so I can so I can code it. And that's always the thing that's that's a challenge with stuff. Well, you're repeatable and re- reproducible. Like you need both yes. in the software side. You know, yeah. it, it, it needs to be not, you know, repeatable with any technician, but then amongst among, uh, different labs and different technicians. Yeah. And it gets frustrating with a lot of the automation out there is when a technician has a problem. You know, the first thing I want to say is, well, did it pass manually? And they're like, I don't know how to test it manually. Yeah. So that comes back into the training side. Is is there a way we can, you know, continue to to train technicians and get that, you know, automation going mm-hmm. to where they can be more productive, but you're not sacrificing that that productivity. So one company out there has very, very highly trained um you know, I'm going to say highly trained monkeys. <laughs> they they know how to run automation and they know the tricks and ins and outs of the automation system. But you bring them into a calibration lab because you see this big company on their resume. Uh-huh. You bring them into your calibration lab and you find out they really don't know anything because they yeah. just press a button, connect it like this and go. You know, they don't know how to do, a, you know, third order intermodulation test, you know, and know the difference between DBM and SHI on those tests. You know, those are... Those are some little things you learn by doing them manually, you know, 300 times. When that's, that's, I mean, a big reason for why I even did the school route, the certification route, which you're a part of, yep. you know, because, and, and, you know, that's a, a good point is some people don't even realize they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I, I, I think there's so much, um, a confirmation bias, maybe. I don't. I don't know what it would be called. Is that the right word for confirmation bias? Where they, like you said, like some of them, yes, they they promote themselves through through changing jobs, right, and just go off of the the history of the lab that they worked at before, or sometimes they think they know what they're doing until someone that does know what they're doing is like, what, what I don't understand what you're doing right now. Can you please explain it? You know, because there's like we were saying, you know, there's. Uh, a big difference between someone that knows what they're doing and not in a lot of these fields, you know? Well, look at that example of, you know, just the meter and having a cable problem. If you got a bad set of cables or the wrong set of cables for doing that type of measurement Mm -hmm. and you're using it and you adjust that meter, then the guy who comes behind you, right? He's not going to, when it's intolerance, we don't question intolerance. We always right. question out of tolerance. Right. So when the guy comes behind you a year later and it's intolerance and it's intolerance and it's intolerance, and then another guy comes in and it's out of tolerance and he's like, oh, hold on. Your leads are good. My leads are bad. You know, what's going on here? Then you can dig into it. But that's one of the things that happens is, is we have a tendency with, like you're saying, confirmation bias is, mm-hmm. is uh, you know, passes good bias. You know, right. so if it passes, you know, just keep on going. Oh, yeah. So. There's a ton of people listening right now that's like, oh, yeah, I kind of just accept anything that comes through. Because it is if you I, I, you cannot escape the, the reality of the current industry, right? Production is king in a lot of places. You know, things have to go out the door. It's like I always equate it. It's exactly like the mail. Calibration doesn't stop. There, a calibration lab always will have customers that, you know, unless they're messing up, they have customers that just have to have calibration done. Like there's no option in their own processes. So 
you know, things need to get done and then, you know, they see it's good. It's like, oh, you know, why wouldn't it be good? Yep. And then there's the uh, Katrips measurement method. I never heard of that one. So that's one of the ones I created. It's called keep taking readings until it passes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and that's the, the most important measurement, right? Is that one that passed? And that was one of the things when I started doing work over in Europe is they're like, no, 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 no. You just can't throw away a bad reading and then replace it with a good one. We want to know about that bad reading. Right. Right. We want to know, hey, there might be a problem in here. That's what kills me about the labs that are not providing data. Like they make that a part of the revenue stream, which like I get it. Like Cal Lab is a uh, Cal business isn't uh, isn't always always easy, you know, but that data, like you're saying, I, I have been a party to coming to a place, calibrating something. It's bad. And then they say that's impossible. You know, almost like they were trying to do a gotcha. But I think they were having us out to check the the other place, not the vice versa. But um when they reached out to that company that just did it, like we're talking two weeks prior or a week prior, um, when they went to to validate that data and then provide it, it was out of tolerance. And the guy missed it somehow. Either that or ignored it. But I think it, from what I gathered from it, it was more, it was just missed in all the data. But right there, there was bad uh, and out of tolerance that, you know, the person that that owns the item cares way more about it, typically. Now, of course, we have a lot of places that just need calibration. There's someone that's going to walk you around and they don't actually care. But somewhere along the way, someone cares about that data. And if they're not provided it and given the chance to at least look it over, there's no look on that side. You know what I mean? And that's why I have a love-hate relationship with the new 17025 and their requirements for risk. The pro of that is that technician or that owner of that equipment who needs his equipment. If he understands his risk of using that, right. then he can communicate with the calibration lab very easily. I don't care about that. You know, right. Yeah. If, if you're failing by a by 100% of the, the tolerance, I'm good. If you're failing by 200%, I'm good because this is my risk. Right. But the downside of that is, is we can't teach the customers to bring the equipment in for Cal. We can't teach them what measurement uncertainty is. Mm -hmm. So so there's going to be an uphill battle teaching the customers risk. And, right. and I think that should be a focus of, you know, training at, you know, the the NIST level down, you know, and then from the customer level up is, you know, just getting some kind of formulation of if your instrument's, you know, wrong, if your torque wrench is wrong, how many tires on the truck are you going to over tighten and right. how many wheels are going to fall off on the road? You know, it's going to need a lot of, of off, a lot of measurement error for that to happen. Whereas if you're putting, you know, the, the bolt on the throttle control of, you know, a, a rocket, you know, that's going into outer space, mm -hmm. there's a little bit more risk there in, in your sure. measurement being wrong. Yeah. Like you, like you said, going back to avionics, you know, things falling off of airplane or, you know, an airplane itself falling, right? That is, that is the, the ultimate on the, the end of risk is where life or property and all that stuff yeah and that's one of my beefs with uh with what happened with boeing so when the space shuttles blew up right when the first space shuttle blew up that was the heyday for metrology everybody in in aerospace and defense and whatnot was putting money into metrology oh. getting measurements you know figured out figuring out measurement uncertainties and the sad thing about the industry and i'm one of these guys that's uh that's that, that kind of looks at things and analyzes them a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But what I see happening with quality is, is people start taking money out of the quality budget. Mm -hmm. 
right? Take money out, take money out, take money out. And they go, hey, look, I'm doing really good saving the company money because we're no longer putting money into quality because we don't need that. And then the quality lags. <laughs> yeah. Right? It lags by, you know, we'll say five, 10 years. So they get to take the money out of the quality and five or 10 years from now, there's a problem because, you know, that equipment was good and it was good and it was good and now it's bad. But, you know, they didn't check it as much because they extended the calendar rules right. or something like that. So it's it was good. It was good. It was good. Now it's bad. Now it's affecting something and somebody dies and then somebody comes back and it says, oh, uh, now we've got to go back and put money back into, into the quality or somebody ships, you know, uh, you know, million dollars worth of, of faulty uh, product yep, seen because that. there was a bad measurement. Pressure you know? gauge. I've yeah. seen a bad pressure gauge for a molding machine cause a company a million dollars in, in product loss. So, yeah. And then, you know, the guys and, and the sad thing about it is both managers get promoted. One manager gets promoted for saving money and then the next manager gets promoted for throwing a whole bunch of money into it and bringing quality back up instead of just keeping the quality budget, you know, to match what your risk is. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, just recently we were talking because uh, we have our management programs coming very soon, you know, uh, because there is a big deficit as well. Like, sure, there's business school and all this stuff and uh, business management schools and all but that doesn't help you with an actual calibration business, you know, because it's it's. I've seen the the finances and how everything works behind a third party lab, and uh, generally, I mean, they they do well, but then a lot of them have owners that, you know, utilize a lot of that fundage, right? Uh, so it can be tight depending on who the owner is. Like that's a, a big factor for a lot of cal labs. But, it, you know, if you look at those budgets and you look at what they're they're using things for, they don't realize that a lot of their waste is in overtime. Like so many places that I uh, consult, they have overtime issues where they're solving every single problem with throw more hours at it instead of, hey, use some of this budgetary allocation for um, it. Maybe on the quality side, could there be better procedures? Could there maybe be a better way of doing things, sure. But the training side is huge. You know, uh, the amount of people that are sent out there not knowing exactly what they're doing, that's going to slow things down, you know. Um, so anyway, a lot of ways to, to kind of analyze how a Cal Lab actually runs and how, you know, things like turnaround time and, and your, um, it, you know, can you right now, if you're a manager, do you have an effective way of determining if someone is rubber stamping things? You know, most people, most managers are going to say no. Like they know how to manage people, right? They know how to do the the actual management of personnel or, you know, on-site personnel, whoever. But do they know how to actually fix problems in a Cal Lab? Not just run a Cal Lab, you know, you know get people out the door and calibrations done. But think about a Cal Lab. Have you seen a lot that run really well? And yes, there are some. You know, there are like the top 10% labs. Um, but I, I would say a, a vast majority just kind of run by the seat of their pants. I mean, what do you see? Well, that's the thing that's 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 actually quite interesting because I've seen the small mom and pops that are a number one calibration sure. labs. You know, seen those, they're out there. Seen the small, I call them trailer park metrology labs. <laughs> You know, they come in, check a couple things, put a sticker on it, send it out the door. But the the other side of that is I've caught, 
I'm going to say every manufacturer, though there's some manufacturers I haven't dealt with, but I've caught every manufacturer in a lie and something wrong on their certificate of calibration or their measurement process. Oh, wow. Okay. Seen something in their procedures that's just dead wrong. And sometimes I can reach back to, to them and I've, I can find the person, you know, and say, hey, this is a problem. And then they can go back in and fix it and update their procedure. So, and then sometimes I just don't have the contacts. I'll just, you know, make a note that I don't check it this way. But that's one of the things that's, that's you know, kind of a problem in the industry when anybody takes a procedure blindly. Yeah. So, so I'll pick on the Navy, right? <laughs> Go for it. I love there, it. There's a Navy procedure out there that took the 3458 and the 5700, took the 5700's uncertainties, multiplied them by four, and those became the uncertainties or the test limits for the 3458 procedure. Oh, boy. So they're testing a 3458 like it's a really good 34401. And I had a customer say, I want you to automate it like this. And I'm like, no, <laughs> not going to do that. Yeah, wow. We got some better ways we can do this. You know, and then uh, manufacturers, um, when I started working with R&R Instrumentation here in Colorado 20 years ago, they brought me in for a job interview mm -hmm. and they gave me an 8590B procedure. And they said, follow this exactly the way the manual says to do this. And I'm going to be over your shoulder looking at it. And I looked up, the, looked up at the technician and I go, well, that manual's wrong. <laughs> and he blows up. Oh, my God. Keysight or HP writes great manuals. Everything's in there. And I go, yes, HP normally writes really good manuals, but this manual is wrong. Let me show you. So, and there was an option on the box, which was the EMI option. Oh, okay. Right? And how they wrote the EMI procedure in the B was wrong. How they wrote it in the E was correct. So I showed him that that procedure won't give me the number I want, following it step by step by step. And then I went and got the E procedure and said, this is how you do that. And then step by step by step, this gives me the right number. And I think it was a problem with the equipment they recommended. And mm. then the equipment you would use wasn't the same, but there was a slight problem in, you know, substitution of equipment and whatnot, and that wouldn't work. Oh, I got you. With okay. the, with, it would work with the equipment you would get then, but the equipment you now would have now would have a problem. Got it. So, um, but yeah. Oh, uh, another one that I found um, was I was doing uncertainties on, uh, on 8753Es. Right. And we couldn't figure out what was going on with the uncertainties. I can't get to this number in the book. So I asked the engineer, I go, how'd you get to this number? Mm -hmm. He goes, oh, I just copied it over from the D. And then I looked at the D. They were the same. OK, so that's what he did. Then I looked at the C. Same. Then I looked at the B. Same. Then I looked at the A. Same. So they took the A uncertainties, each one of the engineers, and just copied them. Oh. Well, they went from a 432 thermistor mount mm -hmm. to a, uh, a 3458A. No, I'm sorry, not 3458, um, a 438A power meter power sensor. And the, the old, um, you know, uh, thermistor mount and the, the power meter, 432 power meter, are more accurate than the power sensor you're using right now that might be an 84 82 yeah those old power meters are more accurate Dude, with that those, dial those thermistor mounts were really good yeah 
Yeah, I remember. I don't remember all the details off the top of my head, but I remember learning about those in school, and and uh, a really bright instructor explained it to me. But uh, yeah, thermistor mount is going to be one that is hard to beat in most cases, isn't yep. it? Yep. Yep. A thermistor, hard. I mean, you look at even like a thermistor for doing temperature, you know, it's it, one of its arguably main purposes, right? It's extremely good at doing that. I mean, there's some some really accurate thermistors. The problem is it's just that range, right? The yep. temperature range. But yeah, other than that, they're super accurate. That's the that's kind of the trade-off is the thermistor will work really well in, you know, medium frequency ranges and you know, very temperature stable things and don't drop the thing or you can never use it again, you know, mm -hmm. and then the diode sensors give you high dynamic range, high frequency response, but you lose a little bit with your accuracies. And that's what we were seeing is as time went on, the equipment was less accurate, but they never changed the measurement uncertainties. Oops. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> so we have maybe 20-ish minutes left. Did you want to talk about... Uh the upcoming conferences, it's kind of a natural thing for us to talk about because we both participate in them. Uh, MSC for sure, I'll be at, uh, and you as well. The and, and we did talk about that uh, before, but this is a more formalized podcast setting. Um, so you have some books here. People listening can't can't see those, but uh, those are from the ITS nine. So the previous one, you said they're like a thousand pages each. Yeah, yeah. So this is from um, a lot of the people who work in the temperature industry. When you go to your temperature device, you're going to have an ITS-90 scale. And 10 years ago, they got together and created this ITS-90 scale. And there was a lot of papers, and we're 10 years later, so they're at the ITS-10 conference. And I'm sitting with the, the committee, trying, you know, marketing and telling people about this, this uh, conference that's coming up. So NIST started this 100 years ago. And every 10 years, they get all the people in the temperature industry together for a conference. This year, it's going to be... Um, well, it got postponed, right? Well, yeah. It was supposed to be uh, last year or the year before last, I think it was. And then it got postponed yeah, because pandemic, of COVID. Yeah. So so they just moved it out a year. And, and you know, once, once they could do it, they didn't want to do it in, 20, in oh. 2022. No, 2021. What year is this? This is 2022 right okay. now. <laughs> so 2022, <laughs> they didn't want to move it into there because it was just the edge of the pandemic. So yeah, they yeah, moved yeah. it out to 2023 so so they could get everybody in the world. So, so this is going to bring temperature experts from around the world. You know, we're not sure how many people will be able to get in the country from Russia, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, you're going to have people from China and Australia and, you know. The Netherlands. The Netherlands. Martin DeGroote yep. will be coming out. Thomas Harper. Oh, I don't think Thomas Harper's coming out, but Martin DeGroote. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's going to be a huge, huge show out there. And, you know, if you're in the temperature industry, it's definitely a must, you know, come and attend. And I've got a set of books here that they, um, so the ITS 10, what they're going to do with all the papers that are presented to the ITS, ITS is they're going to have them formally published on the web and inside of a book format. So is the, let me so is the ITS its own organization, kind of like NCSLI or or MSC? Yep, it's, it's its own organization, so International Temperature Symposium. Okay, got it. So so that's why these two shows are are you know co you know MSC is hosting ITS ten out there. So it's more of a a, a combo conference rather okay. than hey, this is an MSC conference. It's also the ITS. It's 
both of them happening at the same time. I think that was lost on me until uh, I think the last time, maybe the last time we talked about it. And it's like, oh, ITS is its own thing. I got it. Yeah. Uh, so ITS 10 is going to start a day before measurement science. Okay. And then measurement science is going to start doing their tutorials. And then measurement science is going to go into their technical program right as ITS is rolling off. So somebody can get who's an ITS attendee mm -hmm. can attend MSC functions, you know, with the ITS 10 passes. Oh, cool. It's, so so it, it's buy one, get both, basically. Yes, yes. So um, so there's a lot of really, really good things. And there's going to be a, a ton of papers out there. And the exhibitors, you know, we've only got like 35 booths left for exhibitors. Wow. So, yeah. And it's a big – the picture I saw, isn't it bigger than a normal – venue oh yeah 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 we've got uh, the last one i got was um was a company from sylvania i'm probably going to pronounce their name wrong but kimbeck i believe it is kimbeck they do um they do thermal baths so oh, is what they yeah, manufacture okay. but you know just last week they came up and signed up for a booth and you know i had to go look them up because i haven't seen them interesting so yeah like um there's going to be presence there that is normally not there. Yep. Yeah. So it's going to be uh, international presence. There's going to be a lot of people coming in from international community, and there's going to be a larger normal U.S. attendance. Mm -hmm. So is is what we're going to see there, especially in the in the temperature industry. And and Disneyland Hotel again. Yeah, I, I like the Disneyland Hotel. I do too. So um, a lot of people get you know the the so if you're coming to the show. Right. The discount for the Disneyland Hotel is 50 percent off. You know, it's just under 50 percent. So that's a really huge good, discount. Yeah. And a that's lot why I bring I'm bringing my family because it's like some of these things, um, the, the deals that you get, it's it's almost worth it on its own. You know, and then you also got the conference, but like that deal in itself, you know, I, I like to promote the, the metrology vacation, right. The learning vacation. And I know we've said like, you know, some, uh, companies or managers might not like to hear that, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with enjoying yourself while also learning and improving yourself, you know, so a lot to do there. Well, I've been an exhibitor there for more than 20 years. Yeah, you mentioned that. That's crazy. So when I started, you know, when I first started exhibiting out there, I would stay in a hotel somewhere else because, you know, 50% off Disney is still a pretty high price. Right. But then after the first time I stayed in the hotel, I'll never stay in a, in a hotel away from the convention because just the amount of people that you're going to meet in the elevator, right? Just going up to the room, you know. Yeah. I'm going to say, you know, four out of five of the rides up in the elevator, I'm talking to somebody, you know, they're seeing yeah, you'll my see face, their shirt see or their the, face, or the, the, the tag. Yep. And, you know, if you're a, if you're an exhibitor and you got your 30 second elevator speech down, mm -hmm. you know, you might get somebody coming out to your booth to see the products who's just. You know, just there and, you know, wasn't going to hit the exhibit floor, but now they are because they heard about something new. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's 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 absolutely amazing the, the the contacts that I get. Right. So. Well, and and I like to promote, especially MSC, as a great place to learn because, like, I want – I would like the new people in our field to have one of these that they can feel a little bit more comfortable with. And – uh yeah, because I would like to start doing, who knows, maybe even like a full, I told you about this, like a full basic course or something during one of these. Not this time around. 
but uh, it's just such a, a valuable time to get focused time. You know, w whenever I talk to labs and, and uh, many of them will be honest about it, it's like we have zero training time because there is no ability to get everybody to sit down or, you know, different schedules or like we talk about third party being crazy. This is a, a place, a, a great place to send people to get that. Um, that's why I think it would be great for brand new people if we were doing a, a like a basic course because then they get that focused time away from all that hustle and bustle. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely new people. And then as you're running up the food chain, you know, the one thing I've learned after being in metrology 30 years now, I think I've been in the field. Mm -hmm. So is if you think you know everything, no. No way. <laughs> There's just too much knowledge. There's just too many things that's around the corner. Uh, one of the trivial things that, that, uh, that I found out is resistors, those 742 resistors you have from Fluke. Mm -hmm. Right, those things are affected by barometric pressure. Sure. So here in Colorado, if we send them to Fluke and get them calibrated at sea level, bring them back to Colorado, we don't get the same values out of them. Are those oil filled? No, they're air filled. Oh well, that would still yeah. Well, that would still make a difference. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So in NRC in Canada, I read a paper that they were doing, or they were putting them in you know a, a, a chamber, and they were changing the pressure to see how much it affected each of them. You know what's what's the effect? What's the expected effect of this? And these are all little nuances, you mm -hmm. know, of oh wow, I didn't know that. And having a little bit, so even if even if I don't work in resistance. Having that little bit of knowledge, you know, helps me when I'm doing something in RF and microwave, because now I'm thinking, well, if it's affecting a resistor, it's going to affect my, my RF and microwave, you know, slightly, I might not be able to see it, but those are going to be things I need to be thinking about when I've got something that's going haywire. Mm -hmm. You know, if I, if I put an RF system into a vacuum, is it going to behave the same? Well, that, I mean, this is an NMI you're talking about, right? The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the paper. Yeah. So, I mean, these are things that at high levels are being figured out, like that was knowledge that was missing, you know? And and to further your point, I'll tell you, I, I consider myself a really good general technician, right? Like that's why uh, I created the school and all that. But if you really, like my experience over this this three years of running it if I'm teaching pressure, I have to go back and brush up, even though I've done pressure for 20 years. Like I did it in the Marine Corps. I did it uh, at all the places that I've worked. I still have to go back, you know, because there's just so much intricacy to every single discipline. If you're sitting there saying, oh, yeah, I know all of them, and then you don't have any need to brush up on it, I call BS on on that right there. I, I, I learn new things Every day I sit down, I'll read a procedure and go, what are they, what are they trying to do here? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, wow, that's kind of genius. You know, you look at how Keysight does bandwidth on their O-scopes. Yeah. It's, it's a genius way to do bandwidth. Well, speaking of that, you know, doing this RFN microwave class um, that we developed over this year, you know, the new one, um, there were so many connectors when you, you look at the Keysight documentation and the Mari microwave documentation, so many connectors that are actually mateable that are different sizes that I didn't know about. I know I knew some of the, the very common ones. I didn't realize some of the other ones. And, and it, it's just some of those didn't exist when I learned or weren't being used by the military when I learned. So it's not just um, yourself that's forgetting things. Things are constantly changing. And, and there's, there's high level people trying to make things better. And if you aren't keeping up with that, you're missing out. Or in some ways, 
you know, uh, possibly a competitor of yours is keeping up with it and you're not. CETA keeps a really good calendar up on uh, up on the CalLab magazine site. So if you're looking for these events. I need to share a link with that. But one of the events that I was in last week was NIST is moving into, you know, we're getting ready to move into the digital calibration age. Mm-hmm. And NIST had an information gathering event, you know, uh, last week. And it was very, very interesting. And one of the conversations talking about technology change that, you know, one of the guys I was talking to at NIST, uh, Matthew, so I'm sitting here having this conversation with him, and and he's saying, I don't see the advantage of this stuff. I don't see the advantage of this stuff. I don't see the advantage of this stuff. And then finally I go, well, you know, back in, you know, we'll go back to 2000. Mm-hmm. We didn't have EEPROM programmable power sensors, but now we do. Mm-hmm. So the problem with an EEPROM programmed power sensor, and I see this in my software, is I got the Cal factor, but I don't have the Cal factor uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So now my software can't generate a measurement uncertainty unless I have the calibration data. So if back then we had a calibration data standard, well, then people might have started, you know, manufacturers might have started saying, hey, let's adopt the standard and let's put that stuff, you know, in these. So, yeah, you look at technologies changing, you know, it's, it's, it's always changing. Yeah. And the conversation I was having there is, you know, right now our attenuators you know, they're just a fixed asset, but right. pretty soon you can sk- you'll be able to scan those and be able to go get the calibration cert and the data on them. Yeah, and if you've ever and, and and we might be getting a little out in the weeds with some people that haven't messed with RF and microwave, but if you put the, those up and look at them as a uh, you know across an entire an entire vector analysis across their their frequency range, right? It's like a roller coaster, you know, of yeah. different values. You know, so you're right. There is a lot of you know, this is a 10 dB attenuator, you know, not necessarily taking into consideration the frequency point and what is the actual measurement at that point. So, so digital technology is changing along with measurement technologies. So those are reasons, you know, in themselves just to get out there and see what's going on. And, and I did in 2019, I did an article for CalLab magazine that was kind of a cheat because <laughs> I went and I asked everybody in the industry to tell me the experiences you had going to these trade shows. Oh, yeah. And then the pandemic. I think I read hits. that one, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the the conversations that, you know, that were in that article, you know, and then the conversations that I have with people, you know, sitting down at the end of the day, you're going to drink a cup of coffee or have a beer, and the guy sitting next to you is, you know, one of the guys at NIST, and you exchange cards. Mm-hmm. And now you've got another contact that when you have a question, you can shoot him an email and say, hey, you know, we had that beer Yeah, that audit ago. question, remember yep. you said on the last one where it's like, you know, you're, you're going to argue with me right now? I'll pull, I'll call someone from NIST. <laughs> do not argue with me yeah yeah that was uh rob saying that he had an auditor in um who was saying no 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 you don't calculate re- uh, resolution uncertainty that way so he gets on the horn with his guy at nist and corrects him <laughs> the ultimate the ultimate uh one upper yeah i i worry all the time you know and and this year has been a huge year for the school right the expansion of the school i i think we're in most um most geographical areas, most, you know, big cow programs and all that. But I still feel like we're going to get outpaced. Um, like it's a, it's a bad situation. Like we need significant amounts of people 
to replace even those that didn't, we didn't lose at the pandemic, you know, for retirement or whatever you want to attribute that to. And, and, you know, if you look at the numbers, the numbers were going down before the pandemic, the pandemic just exacerbated the, the retirements of some of those that have been around for a little bit longer, right? There's still some left that are going to even leave further. And I think we're in a bad spot um, just as an industry as a whole, unless we're all pushing all, everybody, all organizations, all, all different, um, you know, different missions, you know, we're a training organization, but some are just Cal labs or quality organizations. We all have to push the awareness of this stuff or we're going to be, I'm, I'm telling you the numbers do not look good. You, you might be saying, Hey, you know, we're doing all right as a, as a lab. Yeah. You're doing good now with how many people you have, but I'm telling you as a whole, it's a little bit scary right now. And, and you can look around the lab Right. And you can look at the people. And I got one customer who's going to go from five down to one Oof. in three years. Yeah, that's rough. Right. Is what they're looking at. Because, you know, and the, they're trying to get the, you know, the, the older guys to stay in and work a couple years extra, you know, work beyond <laughs> your retirement. But, you know, some people are going to stay. That's not the answer. Like, hey, you need to work longer because our industry doesn't have people. No, we all should be working, you know, to, to get more but, awareness. Then if you're a manager, you need to do a second look around the lab because you're going to lose half of your people from your competitor offering them more money. Well, if you're losing that many people, you're going to lose people from them getting overwhelmed from the losses of those people. Yeah. And then the competitor thing. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's just amazing. Um, I know a lab that lost um, three young technicians mm -hmm. within six months. To biomedical? No, not to biomedical. Yeah. Actually, uh, one of the guys went and worked on uh, on boilers. So he's doing, oh. uh, you know, maintenance in the facilities. I, I've know. been seeing a lot of um, facility or maintenance or um, I forget the other ones coming up a lot more in there because I keep nationwide. I don't look around the world, but nationwide, I, I keep an eye on the job market, you know, for, for us. But uh, yeah, a lot more in those and paying decent, like, yeah, like. I, there was one in particular that was like 50 something dollars an hour to be doing, uh, um, the general maintenance, not on a nuclear power plant, but just a normal power plant facility, I believe it was. Yep. So, so you look at the pay scales of things, Walmart put out job offers for 95,000 a year over the road truck drivers. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're just seeing these pay scales that we've got a labor shortage in the country. Right. And one of the things that that uh, the typical metrologist, you know, is is going to have I'm I'm an ex army metrologist. So I spent 11 years in the army. But uh, one of the classes I took was with a uh, was with a um, professor who was, you know, a test taking expert. Mm. Right. And yeah. we sat down and we talked about the ASFAB. Right. And dug into the ASFAB. And it was one of the reports that I did for this professor. One, because if I do something he likes right? Then I'm going to get a good grade, right? But also I got to make sure I got my ducks in a row. Sure. So I had to really dig into the ASVAB test that everybody takes coming into the military. Mm -hmm. And at that particular time, you had to have, I believe it was a 127 or higher to come in and be a cal calibrator. Oh, like well, general tech? General GT? tech, yep. And uh, to be an officer, you only needed 110. Yeah, that's horrible competition. <laughs> yeah. So it's like worst case scenario for the military competition, because what young guy wouldn't want to be an officer instead, I guess. 
So, well, after being in a while, I would have rather been a Caltech. After a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, the scenario there is, is, is you look at the people that are coming in and less than 2% of the people who take the test can even qualify for calibration. Mm. Then you look at the people who went through the school, 50% of them would fail. I think it was like a 45%, the number when I was there, but 45% of them would fail somewhere Jeez. in the process. That's that, a big turn away. Yeah. And then they'd move them into, you know, one of these other fields that are great fields to be in. You know, but, um, you know, now you get out into the field and I know me, when I got out in the field, I knew nothing, you know, they taught me and I did great in all of my blocks, but I get out to the field and they're throwing this at me, throwing that at me, throwing the other at me. And, and one of my, uh, one of the guys I worked with civilian, uh, Mr. Kim, Mr. Kim wouldn't give you the answer, mm. right? You had to come ask him a question and then he would ask you a question that you had to go figure out that would find your answer. But he wouldn't give you the answer. That's a smart dude <laughs> to be able to give it. Yeah, that's that's a that's a smart guy. So so that's how I learned RF and microwave is he wouldn't give me any answer. Hmm. You know, so so uh, so uh, you know I got got out there. You know, did the eleven did the eleven years in there. Then I get out to the civilian side, and I find out on the civilian side that that I know nothing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> much. Hey, I mean, I've told this story too many times. I won't I won't bore anybody. But that's why I started the school is there was a huge gap between what I knew. And and I stayed in for a long time. I went to advanced BizD. I, I was a backup for uh, um, the advanced microwave. You know, the, the military has interest in teaching the military technicians what the military needs. They, you know, there's not a lot of temperature. There's not a lot of force in, in many labs in the, in the military. And so those are things that are easy to leave out, you know, um, pressure, you know, the funny thing is, is that I, I was chatting with somebody that was also a, a former Navy Marine Corps calibrator and they were talking about like, well, we got, we got really good, uh, pressure training. I was like, did we? Did we though, you know, we were taught how to use the, the, the King Neutronics, you know, 3666 and, uh, what's the other one? Third, the 88 or I forget what the other one was. It has been a minute since I was in the military, but it, you know, we only learned specific gear and not the theory behind it. And so it's funny, you know, I released that new pressure one where we taught some of the gas laws and some of the, the, uh, pressure principles and things, you know, the, the Pascal stuff and it blew people's mind and it solved or, you know, you know, those calibration problems that you have from like 10 years ago that stick in your mind and we all have them. It, it relieved some of those when they're like, that's why I've had those issues. Cause we did so much pneumatic pressure, but we didn't get taught like the actual laws that apply, you know, just one of those things, you know, in, in, in some ways that, that trained calibration monkey <laughs> really rings home to me because sometimes that's what I felt like I was, you know, I, I knew how to follow a procedure and that's, that's basically it. Yep. Yeah. The procedure is always a good start, but, but man. Oh yeah. In no way am I saying don't follow the procedure, but you get what I'm saying. Like it's one of those things that there's only, and especially if we're, we're talking about augmenting procedures written for another organization and their risk, you know, kind of going full circle on that, which is the military, right? They have engineers that develop their procedures that take into account their risk, right? And you're taking those and you're going to try and apply those to a civilian lab or whatever, you know, it just doesn't work out. I just had a crazy idea. 
So one of the things that helped me when I got out of school, because remember I said I got out of school and I knew nothing. Yeah. I had an NCO that it was 50 push-ups. Oof. If I didn't know something about a piece of test equipment in my van. Wow. Okay. And he comes over, what's the accuracy of this on uh, 10 volts DC? I don't know. That's 50 push-ups. Whoa. <laughs> right? And the next day, it was the next piece of equipment. But what it got me doing was picking up the book and reading the book. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting if there's a way we could do like maybe a TikTok challenge or something like that. Yeah. You know, somebody asks somebody a question, you know, and, and you know, they get it right or they get it wrong. But, you know, that, that would be a very interesting thing because I've been watching some of these TikToks. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll ask them a question like how many, how many uh, um, stripes are on the flag? And somebody will go, uh, 50, you know, yeah. and they'll go, right. You know, so that would be a very interesting thing to do is uh, create some. Uh, yeah. You know, some metrology TikTok questions. Well, I've been wanting to do, um, to add in a little bit of, because the one thing I like to teach in the in the school was block two. We did the 50, uh, the 5725 and 5700, where you're looking for answers inside the, the books, inside of the manuals. And I think that's really valuable to a brand new technician is learning some strategies and I've helped help them like because everyone knows how to use an index and all that but indexes are a little bit different in manuals right and you have to kind of think of different ways of looking up things and and I I like that and I want to add that into our current curriculum at some point because I think that is something that separates really good technicians with the ones that are just the you know, stand off to the side or, you know, the ones that will never go anywhere are the ones that are able to look things up and able to solve some of those things on their own. Did you ever listen to, um, to car talk? No, but is that, Oh, it's uh it was on NPR, oh. right? So there was this thing, the click and clack, the tap it brothers. And they used, I mean, they're absolutely hilarious. The things they would do, like at the end, they'd say, you know, thanks to our, you know, uh, you know, people who work with us, our legal foundation, do we cheat them and how, you know, <laughs> but you know, there was, uh, their whole thing was funny. You know, it was, yeah. it was my car is making this noise. Well, can you repeat that noise? And then they'd both have theories. It was, it's absolutely comedic. But what I was thinking there is they used to have these trivia questions and it'd be interesting to add to the, to the uh, podcasts a trivia question. Interesting. Yeah. And they would always do something like, you know, fill up, put your answer on a, you know, three by five card, you know, with a return address, attach it to, you know, a 5,700 and send it to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's going to be a little bit expensive to ship, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, what it was, was they, they would, uh, they would get, you know, they would always have something they wanted and they'd tell the people in the audience, you had to send your answer in with this thing that they wanted. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a good idea. But yeah, I could see, uh, having some, uh, some good questions. You know, and then people in the audience, if they've got some good, you know, metrologically solvable, you know, questions, that would actually be a good thing to do. And then, uh, well, you hear, you heard it these days we're up to almost, uh, when we're, when we haven't released a new one, we still get a hundred listeners a week, which is pretty, pretty good. So those of you out there listening on your drives or as you're calibrating stuff in your board, there you go. Help us hook us up. Uh, think of some good uh, metrology trivia questions that, yeah, maybe we could well, probably we, we could do that maybe uh, in the beginning of the podcast where, you know, the most listeners are and and uh, we could have a prize at the end of the year or something. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. Hmm. So I've uh, we've we have you ever heard that we're gonna do uh, Calab confessionals? Really? Yeah, we've we put the word out there, and I've gotten I would say probably about a dozen or so stories, and, and of course, all names will be changed and everything, but uh, just you know, either scandalous or crazy things that happen at Calabs, and some of them are doozies. Well, that's why, I, and I've been wanting to do this: go out and create a Facebook page of uh, uh, Trailer Park Metrology. Yeah, well, because dead, do do LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn. <laughs> like, have it be like a. Well, remember, I'm, I had that cartoon lemon calibration. Because uh, I've seen some some absolute crazy things. I was at one customer site, right, mm -hmm. and he's sitting there, and he's got all of these uh, this paperwork because he's going to get NavLab accredited. Right. And then I see him come in. He's putting together his ice bath. Right. Mixing up his ice bath. And, you know, he's going to put that together. And, you know, I can be kind of a jerk sometimes, but he's putting that together. And I ask him, I go, well, what's the uncertainty of your ice bath? And he goes, well, that's a physical constant. I go in, put my hand on the NAVLAB paperwork. I go, when they come here, you better have a better answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's that we went over that in the the document uh, the course that we did in Calab Magazine the temperature course we talked yep. about the uncertainty so there you go for that one if you need to know <laughs> you can find it in Calab Magazine yep so yeah that was that was just absolutely hilarious dang I know audits are the worst in the things that people will say well and the other thing that really frustrates me about audits is. Too many people will not argue with the auditor. They want their check and they want to go. And me, I'm about improving metrology. Well, that's directly from the military. Yeah. I mean, we hammered that home to people. When there's an, you know, the auditors in here, that gunny, that chief, whoever, I'm the only one, me and the, the avionics officers and all that, that, they're the only ones talking unless you're spoken to. You know, don't be bringing up anything. I'm amazed <laughs> I never got an Article 15 kicked out of the military because I didn't care what your rank was. If you were wrong, you were wrong. <laughs> Some of your stories I'm surprised as well. But it seems like maybe they kind of figured out that you knew a little bit what you're talking about. I think what it comes down to is I had good supervisors, you know, that, that knew that I did a good job. And when the, when the auditors or the inspectors would come in, you know, they would kind of shield me a little bit. But I was the guy. I would go get that piece of test equipment that fails, you know, constantly. Yeah. And I would make that the one I want them to audit me on. Yeah. If you ever if you ever see Mike in person or like at the, the metrology on tap or whatever, you, you got a drink with him, have him tell you stories of him tormenting a sergeant. Uh, what was his <laughs> name? Sergeant what? Oh, there was so many of them. That um, main one that you would drive nuts all the time. Well, there was a, there was a Sergeant Irwin with my with my haircut. So that was one of them. Was it Irwin? That yeah. might be it. It was also Sergeant Bright with the M16. <laughs> yeah, Bright. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. remember, it. I thought that that was a funny name for because uh, he wasn't so bright no no he was actually uh, one of the one of the most intelligent people that i've ever met but i just you know i would just just have fun with him about things so maybe it wasn't him then. no no it was, it, it, it was, was him because oh, okay because yeah. he would come in so we're in bosnia Right. And he's got a movie and we brought over a TV and a VCR and built an entertainment center and, you know, had a tent that was like a like a day room. Right. Had yeah. all that set up, lock it up at night. So he brings over, you know, all that stuff. And then somebody sends over a movie 
And he comes over and he goes, he goes, Schwartz. He Schwartz, we're, we're going to watch a movie tonight. And you're, you're probably not going to like this movie because it's a black movie. And, you know, if you're a white guy and you really don't like black movies. And I go, I love black movies. And he goes, he goes, name one. Name one black movie you like. And I go, I'm going to get you, sucker. <laughs> and you just see his face go, how do you know about that? And for those of you guys who don't know, I'm going to get you, sucker, is like Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, It's yeah. making fun of all the black movies that were made before that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just looking at me like, one, how do you know that? When did you see that? How did you know that was the, the, the you know, the smart ass thing to say to me? You know, and, and what he didn't know is, is I've always been the kind of guy that hangs out with anybody. Sure. So I was, you know, at the Domino's table and the Spades table and the Hearts table and you know, just whatever I could do to have fun. So I'd get all these stories and just remember these things. So, but yeah, yeah. Sergeant Bright was, uh, he was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Sergeant Bright. I called him Sergeant not so bright. That's awesome. So, so uh, are we going to do another, uh, wait, you don't do metrology on tap at MSC, do you? The, the problem with metrology on tap at MSC is MSC does a really good job of filling up their nights. So oh, yeah, with like the, the bands and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. That. And this year they're gonna have two bands. So the president's reception is gonna go for hours. Oh, okay. So gotcha. they're gonna have two really good bands and the uh the conference is longer, so we've ex extended the exhibit time to NCSL was was basically two days, you know, an, uh, a night reception, a full day, and then a mm -hmm. half a day, tear down and go home. Right. This one is gonna be still the reception, but two days. Then half a day tear down and go home. So they've done a really good job of of filling up that extra space. And when I think I'm doing the live show at my booth. Yeah. Didn't we figure out that that will be okay? Yep. We can do it there, or if it's too loud, we can you know push it over to a corner. But yeah, that'll be great. I think it will be all right. At least we'll try it, and then yeah. if we have to move, then we can. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, we're coming close to the end of our time. How, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Still want them to go your LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, you can hit my LinkedIn or, you know, just hit calabsolutions.com. I've got my, my phone number up there. So I get a lot of prank calls or, or uh, people trying to sell me insurance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and uh, we should put a shout out for Calab Magazine. If you, if you have knowledge to share, share it in Calab Magazine. Write a, write a paper, uh, provide some training, so on and so forth. Yep. Yeah, anything that you're an expert in or you've got a little bit of nuances you've learned, those make great articles. Yeah. So. Especially one-on-one. -on -one. Like don't don't think that something is too basic because there is literally a a huge crater of information void out there. So if you have something to share, share it. Yep. And we keep them up there 100% free. So um if you don't have a printed copy, you can sign up in the US and get a free printed copy. Um, you just hit the website, you know, uh, get the magazine. U.S. subscriptions can be uh, free. And then also, if you want to come up and, and sign up for digital, you could also get a digital copy. So as soon as it's released, it's on your iPad or your iPhone or your Android. It's right there in your inbox and you can start reading it. Exactly. Yeah, I like I like the digital version. And I have a stack of the of the magazines, too, which is really cool. Well, thanks for thanks for allowing me to come and record at your location and uh, we'll chat with you again soon. Yep. Yep. You're welcome. Hope to have you back. All right. Talk to you later.